Turn this morning with me to First uh, Peter chapter 2. We're going to be down around verses 11 and 12 this morning, and I'll review just a little bit. Uh, if you've been with us, you know that in verses 9 and 10, we kind of reach a pinnacle of Peter reminding us who believe in Christ of who we are. That identity thing is very important. And he's been doing a lot of that, both in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And in verses 9 through 10, I mean, how many identifiers can he heap upon us? We are a chosen race. That's pretty good. A royal priesthood. Wow, that's pretty good. A holy nation. That's really good. His own special people. Wow, that's wonderful to be God's own special people. I'm special to God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? His own special people. We are a people whom he, what, called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We once were not a people, but we are now the people of God. That is, we belong to God. We had not obtained mercy, but we have obtained mercy. There's more identifiers. I haven't brought them all out. But our Christian life has to be centered around knowing who we are. The New Testament is just full of this, and we can't lose sight of that. We are to see ourselves in these new identities, regardless of what identities the culture wants to put upon us. Correct? The culture has a whole list of identities, too, that they want to place on you and me, don't they? Well, regardless of those identities, these are the identities that the Lord Himself places upon us. And that's a major part of how Peter teaches sanctification and holiness. That's a major part of how Peter motivates New Testament Christians to follow Jesus Christ. We might call that gospel motive, if you want a term that we use for that. Now, with this explanation of our new identity in Christ, Peter proceeds to instruct us how to live as God's holy nation and a royal priesthood. At verse 11, he said this, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, Abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. And we considered that two weeks ago. Peter continues in his exhortation in verse 12, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe. Glorify God in the day of visitation. That's what we're going to think about this morning. Abstaining from the sins of our flesh is the only way to have our conduct honorable among the Gentiles. That's the only way to do it. And it's one of the best ways to do it. Because our culture, like all cultures, are just steeped in the indulgence of the flesh. And so, in order to have your conduct honorable, 
That's the practical result of abstaining from the sinful lust of our flesh. Having our conduct honorable among an unbelieving world is a concern of Peter throughout this letter. He's very concerned about that. A major concern of his is how this newly formed religion, Christianity in a sense was a new religion, it's not Judaism, it's not polytheistic paganism, this newly formed strange superstition, as Tacitus called it, this strange, mischievous superstition, uh, this new religion, he's very concerned how in Roman and Greek culture this new community of people are going to be viewed. He's very concerned about that in this letter, and it's coming up right here in chapter 2. Peter states that we need to have this honorable conduct so that when they speak against you as evildoers, your honorable conduct is not going to stop them from speaking against you as evildoers. So he's concerned that they have this honorable conduct so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, Glorify God in the day of visitation. God is going to get glory out of these Gentiles. You see that? God is going to get His glory out of these Gentiles, and then you and I are the means whereby He's going to do that. See that? He didn't say live an honorable life so it will be peaceful and happy for you. No, God is going to use you to get glory out of these Gentiles in the day of visitation. That's what he's concerned about. What does all that mean? Well, we'll keep working on this a bit. They will speak against us as evildoers. Yet at the same time, they will observe our good works, which leads them to glorify God in the day of visitation. Verse 12 lays the foundation for Peter's sustained exhortation to submit to authority, beginning in verse 13, all the way down to chapter 3, verse 7. Look what follows verse 12. Therefore, you see, therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. So he begins a sustained exhortation about authority and how we respond to authority. That's part of that honorable behavior that Peter is concerned that be on display. We will spend our time this morning on the command and purposes for it in in verse 12. Now, let's first grapple with probably one of the most difficult things to understand here, but I think we can get it is how we understand this day of visitation, that they will glorify God in the day of visitation. The reason our conduct is to be honorable among unbelievers is so that they will glorify God in the day of visitation. What is the day of visitation? I think there are are two concepts that work in this passage, and we don't need to decide between the two of them. They both work. 
If it does, then how is it that unbelievers observing our good works now causes them to glorify God at Christ's future second coming? Let's assume the day of visitation here is Christ's second coming. That's one interpretation we could go with. So how is it that our good conduct now is a means of these unbelieving persecutors glorifying God in the day of visitation? I think Peter seems to be making an assumption that sometime between the present and the future day of visitation, many of these Gentiles are going to be converted through the church. I think that's what he's saying. He doesn't say that explicitly, but they're going to glorify God in the day of visitation because they've been converted between the then, the now, and the then, if we take day of visitation to refer to Christ's second coming. Peter's assuming that the church is going to be the instrument of many of these Gentiles coming to know the Lord, and when the Lord returns, they are going to contribute to glorifying Christ when He returns. A second way to take the day of visitation, we could also understand it as a time when God powerfully manifests His presence, either in salvation or judgment. That concept runs throughout the Old Testament. When God visits His people, He saves or He judges. And the idea of God visiting emphasizes that suddenly God's presence is made known. Suddenly His presence is made known. He visits His people. Jesus' lament over Jerusalem actually contains this expression. Jesus speaks that the time will come when Jerusalem and its residents will be destroyed... And he says this, because you did not know the time of your visitation. What is Jesus talking about? The time of their visitation. He's talking about the incarnation of the Son of God. The Israelites did not recognize the time of the Lord's visitation. There's no greater time when God's power and presence was manifested than in the incarnation. When the eternal Son of God became man and we beheld His glory, that was the time of Israel's visitation. When God manifested Himself in grace and power. So Peter could also mean that. As the gospel is being preached throughout the world, God is what? Visiting, isn't he? Every time you get to hear the gospel, God is visiting and displaying his presence in a way of mercy and grace. And God has done that. Why are we here? (laughs) What's the reason we're here this morning? Because God has visited us, hasn't he? He's visited us in His power and His grace. And He's manifested His presence to us in Jesus Christ. There has been a day of salvation, hasn't there been? So we could also take it in that sense. 
that Peter sees the gospel going out to all the Gentile nations. And Peter sees the Lord visiting each of those nations in power and grace. That's what he's concerned about. Yeah, that means conversion, evangelism, all right? That's what, that, that's what he's concerned about. Also supporting this second understanding, there are many references to God visiting his people to save and bless them. One significant one is what James said at the Jerusalem Council. Simon, I'm quoting James now, Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Right there in the book of Acts. That's how that expression is used. James recognizes that God saving Cornelius' household was a visit that God had visited the Gentiles. What? To save out of them a people for his own name. With either understanding, Peter sees believers living transformed lives before the unbelieving world as the means that God uses to lead them to glorify Him. Either at the last day or when He visits them with power as the gospel spreads around the globe. That's how He views it. Now, consider now Peter's exhortation. Having our conduct honorable among the Gentiles. We are to live honorable lives before the unbelievers that surround us. And we are to be a means that God will use to lead them to glorify Him. That is our mission. That's one one major portion of our mission. It's not our only mission, but it certainly is one major part of our mission, isn't it? Absolutely. Peter's teaching reflects the teaching of the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? Matthew 5.14 You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It's almost Peter's text, isn't it? Almost. Peter was with Jesus. You see that over and over again in this letter. And here's another example. Peter heard Jesus say that. That they're to be a light of the world and that the world is supposed to see their good works and as a result of that glorify the Father in heaven? So, yeah, 1 Peter 2, 11 to 12 is our lifestyle evangelism proof text, isn't it? It surely is. If there ever was a proof text for what we call lifestyle evangelism, this is it. As we live amongst unbelievers, this is the text. So what does it mean for us to live honorably among those who don't know God today? Well, honorable means worthy of praise, morally good, noble. Our behavior ought to be such that the unbeliever will notice a difference. 
Our behavior, to some degree, should stand out. And the more that our culture falls in the darkness, runs in the darkness would be a better description, the more the contrast will be. And the more the opportunity for the church. The church will have a much greater opportunity the darker the culture gets to do the work of evangelism. It just will if we follow these New Testament commands and we move and live amongst unbelievers and don't isolate ourselves in some kind of Christian ghetto off on the side. Our behavior will stand out. We are called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. That surely must make us appear different. The rest of Peter's letter gives plenty concrete answers as to what honorable behavior before the world looks like, what Peter has in mind. First, in in respect of authority, verse 13. I've already said that in verse 13. To respect authority. I can remember that I often had been used as references on people's resumes, people that had worked for me. And I get calls from other companies interviewing these people that had worked for me. And one question that inevitably comes up, and I would ask the same question if I, if it was going in the other direction, the question that inevitably comes up, is he or she easy to supervise? That's a question about authority, isn't it? That question would always come up. Is this person easy to supervise? Well, every Christian should be easy to supervise because every Christian should respect God-constituted authority. You will be different in the workplace if for no other reason than that you really do that, that you respect authority. Just as Peter said there in 2.13, honesty and integrity, that's how to live honorably. Lying is so common in our culture, just refuse to lie and you will stand out. Absolutely. It may cost in the process, but it will be honorable behavior in the sight of unbelievers. And your refusing to lie will prick their consciences because God's law is still there. They know what honorable behavior is is because the law of God is deeply written into their consciences, though they're working overtime to suppress it. But when you behave the opposite, it brings that conscience back up. When they're lying every day and you refuse to, you're witnessing to them. That kind of behavior is a witness to them. And it's honorable behavior. And then if you refuse to lie to the point of losing your job, could happen. Could happen. That's even a bigger witness to them. That you're obeying the Lord who bled and died for you. We can't go off on that, but just make sure they know you're not just obeying rules, but you're following the Lord. So honesty, integrity is a big thing of how to live honorable, how to bear wrongs. 
Peter's going to talk about that in chapter 2, how you bear wrongs. There's all kinds of real injustices occurring in the world. I have to add the adjective these days. There's all kinds of real injustices going on in the world. We're a bunch of sinners who violate each other's rights. We are, and we commit we commit wrongs against each other and injustices. Sometimes people are paid unfairly. Sometimes undeserving people are the ones who get promoted or get the raises when you don't. What are you going to do in all of those situations? How you bear wrongs is honorable behavior is the opportunity for honorable behavior. How spouses speak about their spouses and children when among unbelievers. I mean, you you ought to hear how unbelievers talk about their spouses and their children. You can't do that as a follower of Christ. You can't talk about your wife or your husband the way unbelievers talk about their wives and their husbands or their kids. You can't do that. You'll stand out. How husbands treat their wives. How women dress. That's all in First Peter here. You'll stand out because of how women dress in our culture. And how husbands treat their wives. You'll stand out, Peter's going to say in chapter 2, not returning evil for evil, but rather good. Do you realize how powerful that is? When the Lord enables His people to return good for evil? You're witnessing. I'm giving you a bit different definition of witnessing right now. It's certainly laying a foundation of your witness. Yeah, you're going to have to talk about the gospel. You can't ultimately fully witness without words about the gospel. But you might get opportunities to bring the words when your behavior is so bizarre. Okay, face it. You know, your behavior is bizarre. And that's going to open up the door for the words. And that's what Peter is concerned about. Honorable behavior, being a peacemaker, and uh, controlling your tongue. That's going to come up in, in 1 Peter also, being a peacemaker and controlling your tongue. You know, how many employees listen to other employees denigrate their authorities? It's just so common. But you're not going to participate in that. They may not like that, but you're not going to participate in that. You're going to control your tongue, and and you're going to return a blessing in the place of receiving a curse. Now, this is real Christianity. This is Christ-likeness, correct? Isn't that what Christianity is about as far as behavior goes? Christ-likeness. How are they going to know what Christ is like If you don't model it, that's how it works. Your life is a key instrument of showing people who Jesus Christ is and what he's really like. 
That is an awesome thought. It's kind of an overwhelming thought. But that's absolutely true. They're going to get a glimpse of who Jesus really is and what He's like by your life when you are following Christ. And you will obey Him to the point of suffering for it. If obedience brings suffering, so be it. That's how Jesus obeyed the Father, isn't it? Isn't that right? Absolutely. So if obedience brings suffering, Jesus says rejoice in those situations. He says be happy, be glad. When obedience brings rejection and suffering, he says, leap for joy. You're modeling Christ. That honorable behavior is displaying Christ before these people. Now, the other side is also tragic. When we don't do that, when we do the opposite, we'll have a Peter experience and we'll have to go out and weep bitterly. And the Lord still has mercy upon us. Of course He does. This is serious, brothers and sisters. Peter's calling us to live this way. A sobering fact from Peter's exhortation here is that we are being watched. That word's right in the text, isn't it? Peter says, by your good works which they observe, we are being watched. We bear the name of Christ. We associate with Him. We will be observed. We will be singled out. And unbelievers expect us to live a better life than them. They're unbelievers. They don't want to confess Christ. But as as soon as they find out that we do, they pretty much expect us to live differently. And they're right. We ought to live differently. They expect that. And they'll be quick to point out when you and I don't. (laughs) And that even that can be an opportunity to talk about forgiveness. Yes, I didn't obey the Lord in that. And I've asked His forgiveness, see? Even then, turn that into an opportunity. Yeah, Christians still disobey. And the Lord calls us to ask for forgiveness daily. You're right. I didn't honor him in that. Just do that. That'll blow them away. I remember trying to ask the forgiveness of one of my bosses because I, you know, I, I didn't respond to him very graciously and I didn't treat his authority. He did not know what to do when I asked him for forgiveness. I go, you know, the answer is no different. We're not going to make that schedule. <laughs> but I should never have expressed it to you the way I did. So first I had to ask the Lord's forgiveness <laughs> and get that straightened out. But then when I asked him for forgiveness, he was an unbeliever. He, he didn't know what to do. They're not... Unbelievers don't live that way. They don't really ask the forgiveness of each other. You know, and I told him, I believe I told him, you know, the Lord calls me to respect authority and you're an authority over me. 
we're being observed, and actually it's our calling. The Lord wants us to be observed, right? Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. The Lord intends that His people be on display before an unbelieving world. He intends that. And we need to work at that. Now, behaving honorably among unbelievers gives no guarantee that we will not be spoken evil of and mistreated. Actually, it increases the likelihood of that. But how we behave under the mistreatment is a major part of our evangelistic witness to unbelievers. That, of course, is what happened during the early centuries. While believers were being mistreated and persecuted, there were the believers, there were the persecutors, and then there was a whole bunch of observers. And guess what was happening to the observers? They were being won over when they saw how the believers were dealing with rejection and persecution, the observers were blown away by the Christians. And then they found out, who are the, what, what is this all about? Oh, we're following this man, Jesus. Let, let us tell you about him. See, that's how it works. Being spoken evil of, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers. That's often going to happen. Being spoken of as evil is another theme in Peter's letter here. It's a recurring subject, chapter 3, verse 13. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Chapter 3, 16. Having a good conscience, that when they revile you as evildoers... Chapter 4, verse 3, In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Chapter 4, verse 14, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. 4.16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in the matter. It's a common theme in this letter. Believers are going to... You're going to be spoken evil of... Get used to it. Don't try to avoid it. Don't compromise. On the other hand, unbelievers observe our honorable conduct. The history of the first three centuries after Christ's resurrection helps us understand the matter in which non-believers spoke evil of Christians then... And then we'll have to think about now, but let's think of the then first. The then of Peter's context. Heathenism was pervasive in the minds of the common people. Their belief in false gods was often guilt-motivated. They believed that these gods needed to be appeased. And when bad things happened, a plague, an earthquake, a flood, the great fire in Rome... When bad things happened, many believed the gods were angry with them. They took the next logical step and concluded that Christians who refused to honor these gods were the real cause of their anger and thus the calamities inflicted upon them by their gods. 
Thus, Christians were to blame for these calamities. And at times, this led to a deep, deep public resentment of Christians. The Christians were the cause that the coveted public prosperity didn't come. And during those centuries, the coveted prosperity, if you know about the empire, was declining. And everybody saw that it was slipping. In 64, Christians were blamed for the great fire in Rome under the bloodthirsty Nero. This led to some of the most gruesome, gruesome persecutions and deaths of believers. Under the persecution of Gallus in 252, when the pestilence in Carthage raged, Christians were cursed as the supposed authors of the plague. The famous philosopher-poet Cicero lays down as a principle of legislation that no one should be allowed to worship foreign gods unless they were recognized by Roman public statute. Augustus was counseled, quote, Honor the gods according to the custom of our ancestors and compel others to worship them. Hate and punish those who bring in strange gods. It sounds strange, but Christians of the first few centuries were actually accused of being atheists due to the fact that they had no shrines, no temples containing physical idols. They were atheists. And certain Christian practices like the Lord's Supper were greatly misunderstood and and grossly misrepresented. Well, that was then, but what about now? What about now? We will be spoken of as evildoers and hated. Yes, we will. But not because people think we have displeased the gods. (laughs) Okay? But we will be spoken evil of at least in two categories. First, by mockery. By mockery. The hedonists of the world, that is the pleasure seekers, think it strange that you do not run with them. They will condescendingly pity us for missing out on so many pleasures. I know I thought that way. (laughs) They, They will pity us Young people, if you follow Christ, they will pity you if you lead a pure life because you're missing out. Yeah, you poor Christians, you don't have any fun. You can't indulge in any pleasures. They kind of mock us that way, look down on us. The wise of the world describe us as uneducated and backward. We have a primitive religion and we have... And these are religious people who do this. We have a, our, our Protestant liberal unbelievers. You know, we're stuck. We have this primitive Old Testament God. This primitive religion and, and we're kind of just to be treated nicely and ignored. And, you know, you're, you're not very... Shm- you know, you're just primitive, you guys. Religiously. Mockery, you see. We're really kind of ignorant. They are intellectually superior and we are ignorant, believing in myths. 
And you see that in so much entertainment and stuff. Well, this mockery usually, this mockery does not usually carry with it an actual hatred of Christians. It's more of an arrogant pity of us and making fun of us. But there's a second category I have in mind as to how we will be spoken evil against that has risen to the level of hatred and persecution. And I call it me-ism. And this is my own term. I call it me-ism. As expressed in the demand for approval. Meism as expressed in the demand for approval. The insistence is, my way of life must not only be tolerated, it must be approved and celebrated. And those who withhold such approval and dare to express disapproval are deeply resented, even hated. That's where we are and going. Must be approved. And those who withhold the approval are deeply resented. Now it helps to understand psychologically what is going on. The further an individual or society goes into sin... More approval from more voices is needed to suppress natural conscience. In this setting, dissenting voices begin to be hated. I mean, the only way, and until we're converted, we all do this. We suppress the image of God. We suppress natural conscience. And our natural consciences know that all, a lot of behaviors are wrong. But in order to enjoy them, we have to suppress conscience. And we do that. And we keep suppressing it, suppressing it, so we can enjoy our sin. And the further we go down that Romans 1 path, the more voices are needed to suppress that conscience. That's why a dissenting voice that won't give approval is so hated. That is the psychology of what is taking place. You can't enjoy your sin when your conscience is on fire. That's a good thing for Christians, right? You experience that. And so we need more and more voices to reach that level of suppression. And the dissenting voices are hated. You see, we are dealing, according to John 3, people are in a love affair with their sin. And I'm not just talking about, about homosexuality. I'm talking about sin in general. The Scripture teaches us that people, uh, unbelievers, are in a love affair with their practicing of sin. Light has come into the world, but what? Men love the darkness. Because their deeds were evil. And that's the strongest human emotion. <laughs> they are in a love affair with their particular version of practicing darkness. And in order to continue in that, they must have reinforcement and approval. 
And Christians refuse to grant it. That's the psychology of what's going on. How do we know that? We know that because that's how Scripture describes how unbelief and the unbelieving heart and mind work. The tolerance advocates have become totally intolerant. The relativists are insisting on absolutes. Both are thinking, living, and behaving irrationally. And when we engage these people, we have to show them that. You are the irrationalists, not us. Okay? That's right. And we have to show them that if we have a hearing or if we have an intellectual discussion with them. We have to point that out. Hey, we're not the irrationalists here. You guys are. You guys are. All right, well, let's return to looking at the forest from the trees here regarding Peter's exhortation. I'm paraphrasing from Darrell Charles. I'm paraphrasing here. If any Christian community misconstrues being aliens and strangers, that's what Peter called us earlier. He told us to think that we're aliens and strangers in the world. If any Christian community misconstrues being aliens and strangers to mean escapism or isolation, Peter dispels that illusion. In truth, responsible earthly citizenship struggles with how to most effectively advertise, he puts it in quotes, advertise or bear witness to the transcendent values of the kingdom of God. That is a wonderful statement. I'm going to read it again. (laughs) If any Christian community misconstrues being aliens and strangers to mean escapism or isolation, Peter dispels that illusion. In truth, responsible earthly citizenship struggles with how to most effectively advertise or bear witness to the transcendent values of the kingdom of God. We are called to engage in this advertising. This advertising is not gimmicks or becoming like the world. Peter's exhortation describes the advertising we must do. Abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. That's the advertising we are called to do. Yeah, this is lifestyle evangelism, and we are called to it. It is Matthew 5.16, which I've already read. Peter expects his readers can live in a way that will be recognized as good even by the standards of unbelieving persons. 
there's a theological underpinning of that statement. But unbelievers are capable of recognizing a measure of good and evil. And they can recognize that good behavior, even as unbelievers. They can live that way. God can enable you to live that way. The promises of the gospel, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the means of grace, all of these things, can enable you to become like Jesus Christ. And you can be sure when you become like Him, you will bear that honorable advertisement to the world. It is His plan and purpose to conform you to the image of His Son. So there is hope. I don't want to discourage any of you Perhaps some of you have just had a terrible time. (laughs) And we all do. But Christ is the Savior. He saves you both from the, the guilt and the power and the dominion of sin. You go to Him for a complete, full salvation and He delivers it. So do not be discouraged. He calls you. He gives grace for anything He calls you to. He does. On the one hand, they will speak of you as evildoers, but when they see you return good for evil, how you treat your wife, or that you can go to the grocery store with three or four little children in tow... How many unbelievers without the wisdom of God, they don't, they never take their little children with them to the grocery store. They don't even try it. They can't. They can't. They're training their children based on the wisdom of the world. And it doesn't work. And that's why they can't have an enjoyable time at the grocery store with a number of little kids with them. That's one of those displays. That's one of those, wow, you know. Maybe they'll be humble enough to come up to you and say, how, how do you do that? A lot of them will just think it. I'd never do that. <laughs> That's, you're going to stand out. I mean, the way you discipline and raise your children is so antithetical to so much of the world's wisdom. And it's sad. I mean, we're going to be persecuted over the matter. It's very, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what to say. But it, it could get real ugly, real difficult. But remember, that was an opportunity for the early church. That was part of how Christianity Christianized the empire. I don't mean they were all Christians. I don't mean that. So, uh, let's see. Yeah, they'll speak of you as evildoers, but at the same time, they're going to observe a different behavior, a different life. There's also the matter of how we disagree or respond to challenges of our faith. Kevin Zuber's famous statement, it's not enough just to be right. You've got to be right in the right way. It's easier, the the being right part is easier. (laughs) Often that's just intellectual. 
got it all right. But when you bring that rightness to others, you got to communicate it in the right, in the right way. And I don't mean by that not ever, you know, being dogmatic in a right way. Of course we have to be. But the manner in which we disagree is vitally important. There are times we must disagree. We must not run with the herd. We must not, we cannot approve. There are times we cannot approve. Whatever it may be. We must inform of God's judgment coming upon the sons of disobedience. But as Peter will say, we must make our defense, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter's going to say it. So when when you're going to refuse to lie, do it with gentleness and respect. When you're going to withhold approval, do it with gentleness and respect. We must. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, the richness, Lord Jesus, of your instruction, Lord, uh, from your apostles. Lord Jesus, how we praise you uh, that you provided these apostles for your church, even for us. We praise you for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and oh, how we need his work a greater way in our own personal lives in our churches, in our nation. Oh, Lord, come Holy Spirit, as we've sung this morning. And Father, if we find ourselves here joyfully desiring to bow our knees to our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, oh, how we thank you for him, and we thank you that you've been making our love toward him stronger than our love of our previous darknesses. O Lord, as the hymn says, teach us to love what and as you do. We thank you for an opportunity to worship you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.